Welcome to another episode of Adversarial Learning. Welcome to another episode. Uh, we've got a great episode for you today. Our guest is Jake Vanderplas. Uh, before we get Jake on here, the usual uh, administrative BS, uh, you know, podcast has a website, adversariallearning.com. Uh, we've got a Twitter, adversarial underscore L, uh, and we have an email address, adversarial.learning.podcast at gmail. And uh, you can send us feedback. Uh Someone sent us feedback. Uh, he said, some of my theme songs are less good than others. And why don't we do something where listeners can send in their own theme songs and maybe we'll use them. Uh, because, you know, I, I don't have that many in the queue and uh, a couple more episodes I might run out. So if you want to compose, you know, s- some theme music, y- you've you've heard the, the different varieties that I like to use, um, dr- drop us a note, you know, 30 to 45 seconds is probably a good length. Um, and maybe we'll use it. Uh, maybe we won't. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, and yeah, drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Okay. Hey, welcome. Uh, our guest today we're very excited to have is, uh, Jake Vanderplas, who's, uh, kind of a fixture in the local and I guess the national and the world data science scene. Um, I will let him introduce himself. Go for it. All right. Thanks. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um, so yeah, I'm Jake Vanderplas. I am uh, currently a, a data scientist at the eScience Institute at University of Washington. And um, my role there is, is pretty fun. I get to spend a lot of time um, working with researchers around campus and, and helping them with their data issues or code issues or software engineering issues. And I uh, also get to do a little bit of my own research. And my, my own background is astronomy. And I tend to, uh, <clears throat> tend to spend, spend a lot of time in like astrostatistics, kind of applying statistics to specific astronomy problems that we have. And uh, I've, I've been living here in Seattle for about 10 years and have a have a wife and an awesome three year old daughter, and uh, that's about me. Hey, but you're so, in West um, Seattle too, right? Sorry, you're in West Seattle too. Yeah, we're in West Seattle. Um, exactly. I've actually ran into ran into Andrew at the at the local park with our kids a couple times. Yeah. So so uh, Jake, um, one of the tricks to writing a book is that you like plug it every opportunity you get, right? <laughs> oh, I forgot um, that. So, yeah. So, yeah, so when you're introducing yourself, you gotta mention the book, and you gotta name drop it, and you gotta say yeah, a blurb so about bad. it. So, so I wrote the Python Data Science Handbook, which came out about a month ago, and um, it's uh, basically a, an intro to all the the core data science tools in Python: NumPy, Pandas, Matplotlib, Scikit-Learn, and um, it was kind of a culmination of a bunch of uh, courses and tutorials that I've taught over the last few years. Uh, so. so, so I, 
I actually mentioned this in our intro podcast, but I'll, but I'll, I don't think anyone listened to that. So I'll briefly say it again. When I pitched uh, my book to O'Reilly, um, it actually had two parts. The part that I wrote, which was the from scratch part, um, and then a second part, which is, okay, now here's all the libraries that you would use to do data science. And when I pitched it to them, they're like, yeah, that's like two books, not one book. And I said, oh, really? And they said, yeah, and we don't do two book deals with uh, you know people we don't know. I was like, oh. I was like, maybe you could get someone else to write the second part. Um, and they're like, yeah, maybe. So I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that's what actually happened, but your book is kind of my envisioned second part. So it, it's like, that's funny. I, I always thought of your book as a preface to my book. So, right. Oh, wow. So that's what I wondered. So, awesome. so, so I feel like my project is somehow complete now that you've written that book. Like it, mm, it's kind of like awesome. a, it's kind of like a, a weight off my chest. Yeah. I'm glad we could uh, work together on that. Are you going to be doing uh, doing the circuit and signing books and stuff like that? Yeah, um, maybe. I mean, I, I usually go to a couple of Python conferences a year, PyData Pi and PyCon and SciPy, so I'll try to make it to those. And if they let me sign books, then you know I'll do that. Yeah, yeah. So they'll they'll probably let you, <laughs> unless you unless you have really bad penmanship or something. <laughs> Actually, I got to work on that. Sign it in blood. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so the, the, the question that everyone is, uh, is dying to know, why do you have a capital letter in the middle of your last name? <laughs> um, well, you know, actually, it, uh, the answer to that is because of poorly sanitized databases. Huh. <laughs> when I was in, so I guess, uh, originally Vanderplas would have been third, three words in the original Dutch. That's right. And, um, by the time uh, by the time I inherited the name, it was two words: Vander and then space and Plos. And I, I, I imagine that was like an Ellis Island thing back in the day or something. Yeah. But um, when I went to middle school, um, all the substitute teachers call, started calling me Plos Vander. So my name my name was Vander comma Plos on on all the roll call sheets. So I really, I think, like looking back, I think they were just using like space delimited uh, databases for all their student names. Does so anybody still call space, you Plus? Plus Space Jacob. So yeah, at that point, I uh, I turned it into one name to not confuse the school database and or and uh, kept the capital letter for some some semblance of history. You could have used you ever, like right? uh, use Plus Vander as as a pseudonym. Oh, that'd be good. I should do that. Um, <laughs> So, so I, looked up, I looked it up. This phenomenon is actually called bicapitalization. Um, oh. And it, and if you if you Google search for bicapitalization, it'll say, "Oh, did you really mean capitalization?" And if you click no, it'll still do the search again for capitalization. So there's no way to actually Google bicapitalization. Hmm. Um, but fa- famous uh, famous companies that use bicapitalization include, because I found an article, DreamWorks, AltaVista, GeoCities, and one that's close to uh, Musselman's heart. Real networks. Ah, yeah. Right. I'm in good company. Indeed. Uh, yeah. Every time I try to spell your name, I, I I didn't know that it was all one word. I've always thought it was either Vander or, you know, Vander, and, and yep. so surprising. Yeah, it's confusing. <laughs> so so well, we, actually, PhD is another term that would be bicapitalized too. Yeah, it's more abbreviation. Bicapitalized acronym. Yeah. yeah. So, so we ask everyone this, uh, you know, and I guess you're, you, you have a PhD. Um, should one get a PhD to become a data scientist? I'd say if you, if you want to be an 
data scientists in academia, definitely. <laughs> if uh, otherwise, I'm I'm not really sure. You know, I don't have a I don't have a good view of the other side. Um, but what I can say from my own story is that the doing the PhD was kind of my my in into data science. You know, I was doing astronomy research, but it turned out I needed to use all these computational tools. Mm-hmm. And um, that got me into Python. That got me into writing Python and sharing Python and um, and stuff like that. So, I, you know, I've, <clears throat> my PhD, I, I feel like it gave me huge, incredible opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise. But that's not to say that someone who's, you know, already already working in the field would benefit from also having a PhD. I think yeah. does it does it help you talk with the the your clients at the school too, do you think? You have sort of a shared understanding of methods and things like that or Yeah, to to some degree. I think there's a there's a shared understanding like kind of cultural understanding of how research works and you know how grants work and and those sorts of things. And it, it also gave me you know, kind of, kind of going around the various fields of astronomy, it gave me uh, a pretty good practice into chatting with people and learning about their research and finding points of commonality. Mm-hmm. So now, uh, do you serve as more of like a, a resource for academics or more of an academic yourself or kind of 50-50? Yeah, it's about 50-50. So I'd, I'd say about half my time I get to choose what project I want to work on, whether that's a you know, a paper or a, a code package or a, a book or whatever. And the other half of the time, I'm, I'm helping out the, um, the goals of the eScience Institute, which involve um, basically interfacing with folks around campus and giving people a place to come together and talk across the boundaries of disciplines about the types of algorithms that are relevant to everyone. What's the, what are the strangest two disciplines that, that you've ever gotten together? <laughs> strangest two disciplines you know like maybe here's like uh you know a mechanical engineer and a computational linguist and you know you put them in a room and something magical happens yeah well we've done these interesting things in the summer called the uh, data science for social good programs yep and what we're doing there is we're taking uh we hire grad students for the summer and and in teams of four they work with with local uh non-profits on some sort of data intensive thing so we have these people like with backgrounds in astronomy that spend the summer working on um, learning about homeless populations in King County and stuff like that. Cool. And it's really cool to see see what they what they bring from their own field and kind of the understanding of how to manipulate and visualize and work with data, how they bring that to this completely different field. So if I'm walking by the shanty town that's right by my office and I see like telescopes, that's probably why. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose so. So um, this E-Science Institute, what does the E stand for? Yeah, it's it's just the letter E from from what I can tell. <laughs> it's not electronic. Like, so this was started back in 2006 before data science was a thing. And um, if, you look, if you look back 10 years, uh, people were using this term E-Science as sort of like um, electronic science or... Yeah, uh, yeah. Like the electronic bay, right? That's that's where you. Yeah. The electronic bay, yeah, exactly. I always thought that was pig Latin. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. The uh, so I mean, do, do you guys host uh, brown bags and things like that for students and, and the public, or how does that? What, what kind of outreach? Yeah, we do, do you have? a lot of stuff. We have one thing that's pretty cool is all of us run office hours. Um, mm-hmm. All the data scientists run open office hours, so anyone on campus can come and chat with us, and we list our various 
areas of expertise. Oh, nice. How many and people are on your team? Then uh, we do something like uh, uh, we do this incubator program. We're actually just running that right now that kind of modeled off these uh, Silicon Valley startup incubators. But um, we bring in researchers and, and for 10 weeks, we kind of help them apply some new technology to their to their research to, you know, get it up to speed or to scale it or, or whatever they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and how many and folks are on your team? Kind of more, more long-term things. We have postdoc positions and data science positions and faculty positions that are kind of one foot in e-science and one foot in, um, in some department around campus. Can you get a degree in e-science? No, we've been working on the curriculum thing and we're not, we, we don't have a degree in e-science, but what we've been sponsoring is these uh, transcriptable options. So the idea is that you as, if you were an astronomy PhD student now, you could sign up for that this transcriptable option and you'd get a PhD in astronomy with an emphasis on data science. Did and you, you guys make up that word transcriptable? Yeah, that's that's something that floats around the the universe. It just means that it actually appears in writing on your degree, rather cool. than just being you know. It's, it's like a PhD with a minor in data science, almost. Yeah. And so we're working on like the ty- types of classes people can take to do that, and that's that's been really popular because um, a lot of PhD students have this kind of existential angst, right? Because it's only like. Most fields, it's something like ten percent of PhDs awarded have uh, eventually end up working in academia, and the other ninety percent have to figure out what the heck they're going to do with their life. Mm-hmm. And um, having these kinds of skills is is helpful. And we've seen, yeah, we've seen students uh, finish with with do some of our programs and finish, and then get jobs out in the you know the quote unquote real world and and be pretty successful. Yeah, that's cool, and that so that way they don't have to. I, we've seen a lot of people try to reboot in this field, going through boot camps and things like that. So it's it's uh, so it sort of sounds like you're providing that capability before they they leave. Yeah, that's the that's the thought that we try yeah. to prepare people for the real world along the way. And and those preparations actually help research too. You know, like mm-hmm. if you can if you can apply these types of technologies, it puts you a step ahead of uh, a lot of other folks in your department or in your field. Oh yeah, I also was wondering. I mean, you. I, I looked at your CV, and, and it. I mean, it goes on for for miles. Um, but one of the one of the things I thought was was great was how many projects you donate time on with in the open source community. Um, and so, do you do you do any formal formal um, intro for people to how to get involved in that stuff, or do you mentor? Or what what's what's the environment there? Yeah, we do. Um, we we do a lot of kind of introductory sessions uh things like software carpentry workshops and Mm -hmm. and a lot of uh one-on-one mentoring Mm -hmm. um i've i've also we've also hosted things like the um this past year we we hosted the python and astronomy workshop which was basically 40 astronomers coming together who either do work on python tools or want to work on python tools and we got everyone in the same room for a week and uh, and a lot of a lot of interesting stuff came out of that. So we we try to try to give people the ability to do that too. Yeah, I mean, do you have any advice for folks listening who are interested in getting involved? I hear people ask all the time how to get involved in software projects. Um, yeah, it's it's um, it's a little bit tough, especially since I think right now the uh, the the, like the Python data science scene has gotten pretty uh, is pretty solid. There's you know. There's not a lot of low-hanging fruit anymore like there was maybe six or eight years ago. Yeah. Um, so 
I think the advice, you know, what, what I did six or eight years ago is I had some algorithms that I needed to use in my research and they weren't out there in the Python world. So I wrote them and made them available and then mm -hmm. eventually they were incorporated into SciPy and scikit-learn and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that, um, that path to entry is not as, uh, as seamless anymore. Um, but I think that I, I, I think the advice still holds. Like if you want to get involved, you find, find a little niche somewhere where something is not, not being done yet. And you mm -hmm. write that. I, I mean, do you, would you agree it, it would make sense for, I mean, this is how I got started in that stuff. It was, if there's something that you need personally, uh, that, that can be very motivating. Uh, and it, it, it helps you stick with it, which can be yep. a challenge if you're just doing it as an, you know, abstract exercise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all, um, almost all of my contributions have been, been things that I needed for my research or for my yeah. other work. Yeah, even not for research. Like when when I built that uh, that spinning globe that shows all the Trump tweets, that was because <laughs> I, I I needed a spinning globe that showed Trump tweets and uh, yeah, yeah. scratch an itch. Yeah. <laughs> so so, what would you say are the biggest differences between being a data scientist in academia and being a data scientist in industry? I mean, assuming you know anything about being a data scientist in industry, if you don't, yeah, I can it, fill you in. Part of it is that it, things in academia are really ill-defined, and there's not a whole lot of opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah good right. one. <laughs> okay, seriously though, what are the differences? <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the difference there's not a lot of opportunity for data scientists, like just as a data scientist in academia. It's a lot of it's a lot more like people in typical fields using data science tools or, yeah. or using that approach to their research. Do you um, think there's room for more kind of pure data scientists in academia? Yeah, I absolutely think so. And that's one of the things, you know, we're we're here at eScience, we have this five year grant from the Moore Foundation and Sloven Foundation, and that's what we're exploring for these five years is the role of data science in the university. And I think um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting roles for it. One of them, um, so for example, the, you can think about data science as sort of the next version of of IT. You know, I, IT in the university 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was um, intimately involved with helping researchers with their computing and, mm. and doing their work. And then, you know, over the years, it's sort of as as computers moved from the mainframes to the desktops, IT kind of became this uh, manager of email more than more than anything else. And there's some real uh, desire in the IT community to kind of get back into the research world. And I think this this idea that, that we have going on here um, of data scientists as consultants to researchers who have some expertise in computing is something that um, that IT departments might pick up. And no, on, that, a similar vein, yeah. on a similar vein, uh, libraries are are having a big shift in focus. You know, they're no yeah. longer about about warehousing physical physical books. They're about um, collecting and working with information, with data. So we have um, interest from the libraries and thinking about how they can provide kind of in-house data scientists who might consult with students and researchers about how to best uh, manage their data. So one thing that I found uh, really interesting when I showed up at the UW was that they had like 50 different libraries. So like the math department had a math library in the math building, and that's basically where all the math books lived. Um, and you know, when I was an undergrad, I went to school that had like one big library. Um, mm -hmm. what, is, what does data science say about which is the, the better approach? That's changing a little bit just because it's, uh, it's harder to, uh, to justify staffing all these libraries. So, for yeah. example, the eScience Institute space that we are in used to be the physics branch library. 
And now there's no longer a physics branch library. And instead, um, the way the libraries is, is using this space is uh, by letting us occupy it and help the, the university that way. Do people still yeah. use the library, uh, you know, for academic stuff or is it just like a place to hook up? <laughs> I think, you know, they, they did a big remodel of the main library and they like moved a whole bunch of the stacks and put in um, uh, seating and collaborative space and stuff like that. So I think that's, you know, it's less and less about finding yeah. a physical copy of a book and more about providing places for people to, to work and interact. And hook up. And hook up, yes. <laughs> so, 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 uh, your title says that you're a data science fellow. Yeah. So, um, that's, well, uh, what, what does it mean to be a data science fellow? Is that being like being a jolly good fellow or <laughs> it's uh it's a title that, um, we have at the e-science Institute that basically means it's someone who is, uh, sanctioned by the e-science Institute to mentor students and postdocs. Is that the good kind of sanctioned or the bad kind of sanctioned? <laughs> oh, the good kind, the good kind. That's one of those words where like, oh, I got sanctioned. <laughs> I'm sanctioned. Okay. Congratulations or my condolences. <laughs> yeah. So the recognizes as someone who can mentor. So we have, we have data science fellows who are around the university at different departments, different faculty members. Oh, not in the, not in the same, same team as you. Yeah. Not in the same specific wow. team. But, um, cool. Yeah, other people who are kind of affiliated with e-science. Do you tend to hope that somebody from astron astronomy comes to to ask for help rather than other fields, or are you pretty pretty open to other fields? I'm pretty open. It's definitely a lot easier when I'm when I'm talking to an astronomer because I have all the background. Mm -hmm. um, and we can skip the the 15 minutes of uh, introduction of why the research is happening. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. data. Um, it, it's fun it, talking with other fields too. Has astronomy as a field really embraced kind of the, the data science way of doing things? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's been interesting to see that that shift, and because um, I you know I, I came into the field in about about ten years ago, and um, and since then there there's been this real shift towards towards thinking about oh, more sustainable kind of open tools. You guys there and using um, like. A, Python is huge in astronomy right now, but at, uh, 10 years ago, it was maybe, you know, five or 10% of astronomers were using Python. Everyone was it mostly was MATLAB? Was using IDL, actually. Oh. Have you heard of IDL? I've heard it, and I've heard people say funny things about it. Yeah, it's this, it's this proprietary kind of like scripting language built on top of Fortran. And, yeah. Um, Ooh. Wow. It's a DSL on Fortran? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think I've only heard of it because maybe you mentioned it in a talk once. <laughs> yeah, um, but is it something data language? What's the I stand for? Even away from that these days. What's it stand for? Uh, uh, interactive data language, I think. There you go. I was hoping it was just going to be like the E, where it doesn't stand for anything. <laughs> it doesn't stand for anything. Yeah. And what? So, what kind of specific challenges do you guys have when you're you're doing your astronomy work? I mean, I can imagine. I've seen you speak and, and there are, there are data size challenges and mm -hmm. management and stuff like that. So what can you tell our listeners about, you know, what, what so, makes so there are a couple hard. interesting challenges. One is the, the data size. I mean, we're going to have, uh, one of the big projects at university of Washington is the large synoptic survey telescope, the LSST. Um, and, uh, what that is going to do, well, I think my computer logged me out. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear yeah. you. Awesome. What 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 that's going to do is um, it's basically going to scan the entire night, the southern night sky over the course of ten years, and the data rate is going to be something like 
30, 20 or 30 terabytes of images and catalog data each night. Hmm. And so by the, by the end of the time, you have uh, several hundred petabytes of information after 10 years that are, you know, you're trying to, trying to make meaning out of. So it's, a, it's definitely a scaling challenge. But more than that, the thing that's really interesting in astronomy is the, the data modeling itself is a challenge. Um, because we're looking, at, um, we're looking at observations of very faint galaxies. So the signal-to-noise are faint galaxies and stars. So the signal-to-noise ratio is really small on those observations. And we have a really good understanding of the statistical model of the noise. Um, so creating methods that can, um, that can actually take into account those, the, the noise models and the correlations in the noise and things like that is the real challenge. Because if you want to, you can't just, you know, throw a random forest at, um, at this data and expect to get anything out because you really, to, to get things at, at that level, you need to model the noise really in a detailed way. So you can, do so, any like deep deep learning stuff on the images? <laughs> you know, we haven't we haven't done deep learning stuff. That's one thing that I think would be interesting to explore. I know I know some people there has been some use of uh, neural networks on um, image identification, but one of the problems with those sorts of things is that neural networks and deep deep learning things are are such a black box, and it's really hard to interpret the results. When you're trying to figure out exactly, you know, what's what's being identified and what's so so here's a, here's a free idea that I just came up with, but I think All it's right. a good idea. Um, take something like ImageNet, um, feed it these astronomical images of the sky, right, mm -hmm. and see if it can discover like new constellations that you never would have thought of. Like, you there know, you oh, this one triggers, you know, the walrus detector. Therefore, that must be like a walrus constellation. <laughs> That that and sounds it, good. You know, there's this there's this great uh, history of uh, April Fool's papers on the astronomy community. That one would be really good. Yeah, those those methods rely on a lot of edges and stuff like that. So I'd, I'd be curious to see how it could handle what you're talking about, which sounds like just looking in a bunch of static for very very subtle uh, things. Yeah, yeah. So so you might have to like take maybe a pre-trained model and then, you know, train it further on some labeled data of, you know, yeah. here's here's all the constellations to get it to learn, you know, okay, also these patterns of dots should be triggering things, but I bet it's doable. Um I say not being willing to try it myself, but it should um, be fine. Someone else can do it. So so do you do you meet a lot of people who like get mixed up between astronomy and astrology? <laughs> yeah, it happens. <laughs> It's it's always pretty entertaining. Leads to good good discussions. How does it go down? <laughs> like, how long does it take to realize that you're talking about different things? Uh, most of the time, I, I know exactly what they're talking about, and I just roll with it. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Oh, the really fun discussion to have when people t bring up astrology is to talk about um, about sidereal astrology. It's this it's this branch of astrology that. You know, like if you ask, if someone asks you, what's your sign? And you say, my sign is Gemini. What that, what that statement means is that 2,200 years ago when the uh, Zodiac was codified, that um, in the month of June, when you were born, the sun was, in, was on top of the constellation Gemini, right? Oh. But, uh, but the earth has this procession thing. There's this 26,000 year procession period where the North star changes and, um, and the spring equinox changes and things like that. And, um, so right now we're about 2000 years off of the, the accepted astrological calendar. So if you're born in June, you're not a Gemini, you're a Taurus. Oh, so, so you, so there's a drift. 
Yeah, there's a there's a drift, and um, you know we're about we're about like one thirteenth of the way through that drift cycle right now. So, do the personality characteristics actually drift along with the precession of the of the of the Earth? Yeah, that's that's what's fun to bring up if you run into huh. an astrologer. You know, Are so, just and I, I tell them things like uh, you know I've. I've tested this. I look at the horoscope, and um, and Gemini is always wrong for me, but Taurus is correct, even though I'm a Gemini classically. So wow, okay, that's that's really good to know because I always read. I mean, the Taurus is always spot on for me, so I might <laughs> want to rethink that. Yeah, yeah. So, so are there? Do you know if there's a lot of people using data science in astrology? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That'd be interesting. Is there like a Python library for astrology? Uh, not that I know of. I'd, I'd love to do like a, a data-driven approach where you try to ask whether Pluto is really a planet by seeing if it if it has an effect on the astrological tables. Oh, that'd be pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Is Pluto a planet? Not now. Uh, not according to the uh, International um, Association of Astronomers. The, the, by that by that definition, it's not. But people still argue about it. But according to you? Oh, according to me, I'd say it's not. It's, uh, it, I, I'd say no, it's not a planet because um, it's more like, you know, basically what we discovered uh, um, is that the Pluto and out there, those objects out there are part of the Kuiper belt. So Pluto is one of many, many objects that are quite similar in size and similar oh. in characteristics. So, so it so just happened to glint, it was glinting brighter and somebody thought it was a, a, a actual planet. Yeah, so in the mid twentieth century, someone someone saw this, and it was the for for decades it was the only one of these Kuiper Belt objects that we had seen. But then, um, uh, in the last maybe ten years, there's been a lot more of those found, um, particularly by Mike Mike Brown's group down at Cal, Caltech. He wrote this book called Pluto Killer. Um, Doesn't Pluto have a heart on the surface that we saw? Yeah, that was really crazy. We, yeah. we first, just this last year got um, the first close up pictures of Pluto. And um, geologically, it's this fascinating body. There, there's so many things going on there, and everyone expected it to basically be a dead ball of ice. But um, all from everything that we saw, it, it, there's there's just incredible geological things happening on Pluto that we never would have anticipated. I mean, based on the photographs, it it's a, it looks like a planet. Yeah, well, you know, if you see ser- close close-up pictures of Ceres and the asteroid belt, it would look quite similar. You, you might call that a planet. I might. I mean, what, wouldn't the moon look like a planet from a close-up photo? It is a planet. Oh, of course. <laughs> no, but why do people, people, a lot of people seem really emotionally invested in this question of whether Pluto is a planet. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I can't understand. Because we grew up with it. It's like, it's the Pledge of Allegiance. But Yeah, it, it's sort of like the, they, they taught us that in school. And, you know, if that one thing they taught us turns out to be wrong, Maybe it's all wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe, the, maybe the Civil War never happened. <laughs> I love yeah. the cartoons that anthropomorphize Pluto and like talk about getting it getting kicked out of the club. I think that's yeah. kind of what people are thinking about. You know, like, people get attached to it. It's like it's the lonely one out there. Yeah, protect the small guy. Yeah, yeah. That, that seems to be a, a, a theme of, of discussion in our country these days, right? Protect the small guy. Mm. I snow. Is that a stretch? <laughs> so, it's, try, it's trying to be political, but I don't think you're always trying to turn it to politics, Joel. <laughs> always, yeah. Politics or astrology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you were, I mean, I, you know, this is a personal question, but when you, I know you're married, but when you were in the dating world and when you were 
choosing a spouse, did you take did you take the star signs into account? Uh, no, I didn't. Hmm. But um, but Myers Briggs, you got to take that into account, right? That's just... <laughs> well, well, what's your Myers Briggs? <laughs> well, I'm a I'm an ENTP, I think. That's what I would have guessed. Yeah. Empathic. No, I th- I think no. it's I think it's super funny because Myers Briggs tries to um, break all of humanity into sixteen different types, and it's like it's like an improvement over the twelve different types that you get from the zodiac. My, uh, my, my, my friends, when I lived down in California, we were, we were all like super into Myers-Briggs and when we met people, we would like instantly try and diagnose them like yeah. within the first five minutes of meeting them. Yeah. And we had next guys at, 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 at real networks, uh, oddly enough, where we, our whole team did that. And my manager at the time took one and I took one and, and it turns out in the, in the debrief that we were supposedly the absolute wrong personality types to be working together. Mm. Yeah. You know, my, my, my friends, uh, we, we were younger, um, and we, we had this really strong, uh, prejudice against people who had S types. Uh, <laughs> What's that one? So, so N and S are like, uh, N is intuitive and S is sensing. Um, and you know, there, there's a sense in which it's, you know, people who abstract versus concrete thinkers, maybe, Mm. Uh, I don't know if that's a great summary, but, uh, shiny object in front of me, shiny object in front of me. (laughs) Okay. But the whole, I mean, the whole thing is uh, the fact that it's self-reported is suspect. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I love it because you, you take the tests and you like answer 20 different questions that say, I like to talk to people at parties. And then at the end, you look at the little grid and it says, you like to talk to people at parties. Right? <laughs> yeah. So you like to talk to people at parties. Yeah, apparently. That's what so, Myers-Briggs tells me. I, I hate talking to people at parties. Like what, what's, uh, you know, what's a good icebreaker? How do you do it? Yeah. Well, you know, the, it's one of the nice things about be studying astronomy or astrophysics is like, depending on your mood, you can decide if you want the conversation to continue. Because if you want it to continue, you say, I study, I study astronomy. And if you're done with the person, you say, I study astrophysics. Uh, well, so to be clear, like, I don't have any problem, like, bringing conversations to like a dead halt. Uh, I, I'm very good at that. Um, <laughs> it's more the getting them going in the first place that I'm asking about. But did you yeah, take Myers Briggs into account when you were dating or choosing a spouse? Just to just to follow up on that, no, I, did. I didn't. But uh, the the reason I thought of it is because I'm I dated this girl once, and I'm pretty sure the reason she wanted to date me was because this book told her that our types were compatible. That's awesome. Like, yeah, that's <laughs> kind of funny. I uh, I took Myers Briggs into account. Um, oh, good. When I was dating, for mm. sure. Uh, so, but so, but uh, you know, back to the the you know how how data science is different in other fields. How do you think um, how do you think data science has has the you know cha- is different than ast- astronomy? Um, or sorry, in astrology versus astronomy. Astrology versus astronomy. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there a different methodology that you you think that they should use? Or <laughs> I don't know. Do you have to worry more about confirmation bias in your modeling? Mm, that's that's probably a good point. Yeah. Well, I think you know, data science in general is such this such a nebulous term that you just basically, you know, you you can do whatever you want and call yourself a data scientist. Exactly. Well, what's the official e-science definition of data science? 
Uh, it's, um, I don't know if we have a definition. I think it involves, uh, it involves say, um, three circles drawn together. No, come on. No. Um, but our, our data scientists, our, our definition here is, uh, a data scientist is a person that is, um, fully funded by the science Institute rather than having, a um, some sort of a soft money grant funding. Okay. And, um, our responsibilities include uh, doing all this sort of consulting slash mentoring work with people in different departments. Uh, do you break people out in software and data? Do you break people out into type A and type B data scientists? No, I've never done that. Do you, what's your thought on that that discussion? Um, I I've actually I'm not, I'm not sure what the details of that are. Okay. Oh, okay. I I know this because I'm running a talk and I was using it in it. Um, type A is the analyst. Um, and so because it's, cause I'm running a talk, I have to put jokes in it. So the type A data scientist is the, what's a unit test data scientist and, and type B is the builder. And so the type B data scientist is the, what's a trained test split data scientist. Oh, okay. So kind of like software versus statistics in some ways. Yeah. 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 What's the yeah, type we C? Yeah, that all into one, into one bin. But we know there, there are people who, are, who have uh, more experience or expertise on one of those sides. So uh, changing, changing the subject, um, mm-hmm. you have this kind of talk and point of view on statistics for hackers. And I love that talk. Um, Thanks. And, and, I, and I love those ideas. And, and, and I want to hear you... Um, describe them for our audience. And I'm curious, like how you came around to kind of that point of view on statistics. Yeah. So the, the idea with that talk, so statistics for hackers was a talk I gave at, at PyCon uh, last year. So that's video is up if you want to see it. And um, the basic idea is that if you, if you look at how statistics is classically done, it's, um, it's a whole bunch of proofs and, and uh, figuring out how to integrate certain distributions to derive limits and analytical p-values and things like this. But, um, and, and I think that works really well for a small subset of the population who thinks in uh, mathematical formulas. But for, for the rest of the world um, who doesn't necessarily think that way, um, there, there are, I think, more intuitive explanations. And one thing that can be quite intuitive for someone who codes, who, who likes, to, likes to hack around with code, is this idea of um, simulation. So rather than having a, an analytical probability distribution and you're integrating it to find the mean value, you just, uh, you just use a pseudorandom number generator and generate values and take the mean and you get that out. And you can start, by going on, on that sort of principle, you can, you can start to understand all these things like p-values and hypothesis tests and stuff like that in a way that's um, pretty intuitive, I think. And this is not something that I came up with. There's been a, a lot of writing on this um, in the past, and, and folks in the statistics community have been studying this approach for, for decades. Seems like but, it'd be a good way to, to help people understand how different distributions are generated by different processes, too, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, um, you, can, you can start saying, like, like if, if I say what's the what's the distribution of a, um, a product of two Gauss, uh, two normally distributed variables, right? You can start to like scratch your head and think about PDFs and, and integrating things or stuff like that. Or you can just 
go in Python and, and yeah. generate 10,000 numbers and multiply them together. Yeah. Why do you think statistics isn't taught that way more often? Uh, it's, it's starting to be taught that way more often. There's some, there's some really, uh, there's some really nice approaches to that. I know, I know UC Berkeley has been running this intro stats class based on simulation. That's been really, really popular. And if you look at things like the open intro statistics books, these, um, these free online textbooks, they have um, two versions of their intro stats text, the, the kind of classical formula-driven one and the sampling-driven one. So people are coming around to that. But the reason, um, you know, the reason they haven't been doing it forever is because it's only in the maybe the last decade or two that computers are fast enough for, for this sort of thing to be accessible to, to a beginner. You know, if you had to, if you had to go to a, a mainframe to computer in order to simulate ten thousand random variables, that's not a very effective way to just play around with it. Yeah, now it's much more like a scratch pad, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, are you? Do, do you teach statistics at the school too, or or more the? the no, I mean, most of my teaching is in kind of software engineering um, mm-hmm. that area. So I haven't I haven't taught any statistics, but. Um, I think I think it's a really interesting approach that deserves more uh, more exploration. Mm-hmm. Are you a are you a frequentist or, or a Bayesian? Uh, I, I tend to be a Bayesian in, in that I I think about um, uncertainty in probabilistic terms. Me too. <laughs> what, what about what about you, Andrew? I don't have an opinion. I'm not. Uh, I don't know enough to have an opinion. I don't really believe in statistics, so I'm not the right guy to ask. That, 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 that sounds like an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, you know, I look back I, when I think back on the statistics, the statistics I took in school, I, you know, I have a feeling that I didn't learn anything. And then one time I looked back at my transcript and I, I did great, but I just, I, nothing stuck. I didn't, I never got a real handle on what it is. So I basically just rejected it as, as something I don't believe in. It's probably because they were teaching you frequentist methods. Yeah, you know, teach us and student, whatever. And I, I just, you know, I, I learned enough to do well on the exam and then promptly dropped it on the floor. You know, mm. when, I was, when I was writing my book and I, and I did the statistics, and there's a chapter on statistics, a chapter on probability, a chapter on hypothesis testing. And, like, I went into those thinking, you know what, I, I know all this stuff, right? And mm. then as I sat down to, like, write it out, I realized I, didn't, I actually didn't know any of it. So I had to, yeah. like, I had to learn it for real. <laughs> yeah, I've taken all the classes, but I never learned. Well, it's the yet. same as when you try to teach something. You're like, oh boy, I really got to learn this now. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how did you come up with the idea of writing your book? Uh, you know, I so I, I've been doing all these like I've been doing the tutorial circuit for years at the SciPy and PyData and PyCon and things like that and also a lot of like informal workshops and things around the university so I had I had all this content that I developed and ways ways to teach it and ways to think about different things and um, I kept getting people coming up to me and saying what books should I buy in order to you know to, to do all this and and I didn't, I didn't think a, a good book that covered all that existed yet. So I, um, I, I knew some of the O'Reilly people and I called up, called them up and asked if they, um, if they were interested in this book that I had in mind. Was it, was it one of the reasons why I personally was hesitant to write that kind of book? Um, well, one is that I don't know those libraries as well as you know them. So, um, mm. I might not have done a good job, but the, the second reason is that, um, Anytime you write about Matplotlib or Scikit-Learn, like those are all libraries that are in flux. 
So yeah. whatever you write is going to be kind of potentially out of date a month later, right? Did you worry about that? Yeah, I worry about that a little bit. Um, that's one reason I, w- I really wanted to put the, uh, all the Jupyter notebooks for it online so that it, they could yeah. be, in, in theory at least, be, be updated as things yeah. go on. Just a so, live errata, errata file. Yeah, so if you if you want to check out my book and you don't want to buy it, you can go on my GitHub and find find the entire book in the form of Jupyter notebooks. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, and and so you know, everyone is sitting at home thinking, "Gosh, I'd love to write a book one day." Well, what advice would you give people who who are sitting there thinking, <laughs> "I want to write a book"? Uh, the the most important advice I think is don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's exactly the same advice that I give. Yeah. It's it's really awesome to have written a book, but writing a book is horrible. Yeah. Uh, so this is a touchy subject, but um, which version, which major version of Python did you decide on for that book? For the book, oh, I used. Uh, I ended up using three five. Okay. Nice. So um, yeah, Robert. I switched over maybe maybe two years ago. I switched over to doing everything in Python three. Mm-hmm. Um, when I write when I write packages for other people to use i um, write all the unit tests and and do continuous integration in two seven three four and three five oh. I start doing three six now as well yeah cool um, but yeah it's uh you know for the i think there's there's no reason now not to use python 3 except for little niche fields where you're depending on some old package that hasn't been ported yeah, it, it, it's it's a source of sort of eternal low level sadness for me. I I personally made the switch to three like three months after my book came out, uh, and then I was like, oh shit, I should have like uh, should have done the book in Python three. Yeah, um, but we we released an open source project at work, and and I wrote the Python parts of it, and I wrote them uh, using Python three features. Mm-hmm. Um, not that very many people are going to use this project, but in, in the documentation, I was like, I use Python three features um, in order to force you to use Python three. Yeah, people are talking about doing that. I mean, like like Matplotlib actually, and and AstroPy and some of these other packages have on their schedule when they're going to drop Python two support, mm-hmm. and it's like a few years from now type of thing. Mm-hmm. So we're we're going to get there. We're going to move past the hump. How many how many packages do you contribute to? Uh, I've. I've done a lot of, you know, there, there's like this long tail of very small things that I've done, but the, the mm-hmm. ones that I've contributed significant code to are scikit-learn, uh, scipy, um, and astropy, and then um, Altair is another one. This is kind of a newer newer visualization library that I've Oh, yeah. What, uh, so what's, tell us about Altair. Yeah, so Altair is this... Uh, it's this uh, visualization library for Python, and it's built on. You, you might have heard of Vega and Vega Lite, mm-hmm. and nope. these are they are um, they're graphics specifications. It's like a format to specify what you want your graphics to look like in like SVG or something. Jason string. So it's like SVG. Uh, it's similar to SVG, except it's uh, SVG is aimed at like pixel level interactions, okay. where Altair and uh, I'm sorry, Vega and Vega Lite are more high level kind of declarative. I want to I want to compare this variable versus this variable. Okay. And, um, the idea is that if you you know rather than saying I want the x limits to be zero to ten, you just say I want this variable oh. versus this variable and um, the the code should figure out what the x limit should be and how to color it right and nice. how to okay. use legend correctly and things like that. So Does it decide is, what type of plot to make too? Yeah, in um, in some cases, cool. um, 
Is it yes. like what Altera is? Is it's a Python wrapper around those tools that are being developed um, in JavaScript. So instead of specifying your your plots by writing raw JSON strings, um, you specify your plots by writing uh, a hierarchy of Python objects with all the all the like tab completion that you get from IPython and things like that. And it's actually it's quite nice. It's a it's a nice way to explore data. Cool. Does it use like heuristics to decide how to graph things or is it using like artificial intelligence or machine learning or what? It's uh, under the hood. It's mainly heuristics, you know, they, and it's things like, you know, there, there's decades of uh, research in like, in how to effectively visualize things. Um, like for example, people have actually looked in and done, done human subject studies to figure out if you should map a quantitative variable to the area of a point or the diameter of a point. Mm-hmm. Right. And so so there's all that kind of knowledge that um, is the answer? out there and it's baked into the it's baked into the um, the code area or diameter. I believe area is the one that's uh, that that's more at most accurate and people like judging what information is there. But I thought area was a no, no, because pie charts are bad. Oh, uh, maybe it's diameter. I might be I might be mistaken on that. The diameter is also I mean, yeah. I don't know. Do you think there's room, like, because when you describe a problem like that to me, I, and I mean, I work at an artificial intelligence research institute, so I, I have a, a pretty strong bias. But uh, the first thing I think of is, oh gosh, you should be using, you know, some kind of machine learning to mm-hmm. take a plot description and, and generate a plot. Is it, are there people who think about it that way? I haven't come across them, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I've always thought the best plotting library would be like an NLP processing one. So you feed it your data and a string of what you want to see, You're like. I want to see X versus Y and make the po- points colored pretty. Yeah, I mean, so so there's all these you know deep deep learning models that, that you see about that you basically tell it a description of the scene and it'll like generate um, a scene like that. Mm. I don't want to say all these, but I know I've seen a few like that recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, you know, you know, maybe 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 it's not that far off. Although NLP is hard. Yeah, and and especially subtleties in NLP are really hard. Um, so if you say like dog playing tuba, like there's no real subtleties there. It's a dog playing a tuba. But if, but if you say dog playing a tuba and on top of it is the thing that before. And so you start getting all this co-reference. Uh, yeah, yeah. Then it gets harder. And so I think some of the graph things can be, can be tough like that. But that could be a, that can be a cool startup. Um, if you don't want. Yeah. Are you, are you, are you looking for folks to pitch in on that project too? Yeah, it's, uh, so so right now we're we're kind of in a waiting game. There's not not much to be done because the the Vega Light team is in the process of uh, building their 2.0 release. Okay, and that's going to change a lot of things. So I'm hesitant to like invest much in their 1.3 version right now. But the 2.0 should be out within you know a month or two. And at that point, I'm going to be diving in and um, particularly I'm looking for for people to like use it and and work out the kinks and and figure out how to how to express these things and APIs and things like that. Did does it have, have a lot, does it have a lot of users yet? Uh that's hard to say. It's I mean, I I don't really know how to track users of open source projects. There's people use like, stars on GitHub and that's that's a completely You, you bogus. put in code that phones home every time someone uh <laughs> Actually, um, I've been thinking about that uh Oh. I don't know if uh, I'm ever actually going to use it, but but my friend and I put made this little package called Popular, where P O P Y L A R, and 
it's a lightweight package that all it does is give you a little hook to let you phone home to Google Analytics at any point in a code. Oh, so that's awesome. You could, you could theoretically do that. There's still like ethical implications that we're trying to figure out. So we're, we're asking around before we're actually going to use this or recommend it. But I you think it's an interesting us. Group of Definitely ask us. What's your, what's your best, you know, succinct pitch on why someone should, who's used to using other visualization tools should, should give Altair a shot? Well, I think it's because it, um, it, it allows you one, – one guy was using it and, and gave this review, which I think is really good. It, give, it gives you a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one mapping between how you think about Viz, how you code Viz, and um, the visualization that comes out. Also, you get rid of all that matplotlib uh, config stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so I think this, this idea of declarative visualization is really powerful, the, mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea that you're not specifying exactly what you want to happen or how you want it to happen. You're specifying um, overall what you want to see and the, and the code figures out the rest. And this is kind of like, you know, like SQL is a declarative language, right? You're not telling yeah. the computer exactly what to do. You're telling the computer what you want to happen in the end. And I think there's room for uh, a declarative plotting library in the same way where you don't have to worry about the details. Did we talk on a previous episode about how it sounds like you don't know what you're talking about when you say matplotlib? Oh, <laughs> I think it was mentioned. Somebody, somebody talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's matplotlib. Yeah. Matplotlib. Sorry. Yeah. What do you think on the numpy versus numpy? I asked, uh, I asked Travis Oliphant that. Yeah. Because I was, I typed that into my computer and my wife saw it over my shoulder and said, what's numpy? And I had a, a huge laugh about it. Oh, ha, ha, ha. No, it's numpy. And Travis said his wife says the same thing. <laughs> so, so I always say NumPy when I'm talking to people, but when I read it in my like internally, <laughs> I, I pronounce it Numpy. Yeah. yeah, it's the same for me. Uh, <laughs> so, so another version of SciPy is Skippy. Skippy, yeah. I, I that one I haven't heard. Yeah, that, but that's good. Like but the peanut butter. Speaking of Continuum, what is your you know? Do you use Conda or uh, for for your workflow? And how how would how does Jake Vanderplas set up a new project? Yeah, I, I use Conda for just about everything. So I have uh -huh. like I have like a hundred Conda environments because every software package I'm using and developing, I have its own test environment to make sure that I, I have all the right dependencies. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I really like Conda. Um, you, you know, when when Conda first came out, it was kind of a game changer because you could you could you could actually manage Python packages that had binary components, and that's something pip just could not wow. do at the time. I don't know um, about now, that. Now pip has this wheel format that that sort of uh, addresses part of that issue. So I think for the for the average person uh pip and conda are, are mostly interchangeable if you're just trying to like um work on work on python code in your own local environment. Mm -hmm. But um I I recommend conda for all my students. Um, what about the, how how do you maintain like good discipline? Like, you know, I start off with like grand plans, like I'm going to keep it all clean. And then I just like install everything into my TensorFlow environment. <laughs> and so now I just like, it's like, oh, I got to do something. I better source activate TensorFlow because that's where I've stuck everything. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't think I'm as regimented as you imagine. I, I have a, I have a, a main environment that's Python 2.7.3.4.3.5.3.6. And those are the ones that I kind of turn to on a, on a daily basis. And then whenever I'm doing something specific, like wanting to test AstroPy with NumPy version 1.10 or whatever, I, I create mm -hmm. an environment for that. Um, we're, we're winding down in time, but like one, one last question. Uh, what do you think of R? 
I think R is, uh, is pretty phenomenal. I haven't, I haven't used it much myself. Um, but the, the thing that it's, it strikes me that there's been a, a huge amount of progress in the R community in the last several years. And, yeah. and lots yeah. of that comes from, uh, from Hadley and Hadley Wickham and the, the way that he kind of thinks so uniquely about these, uh, these data science questions or, or working with data. And so it's, it's been really cool to see that growth there. Um, I see one one way to put it is R is now usable. Yeah, that's that that it's a good way to say it. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. I still like, you know, I just I just love working in Python. I I can kind of like I can think in Python in a way that I can't think in any other programming language. Mm-hmm. Uh anything anything you want to ask us while you got us on the on the line? Yeah, uh why'd you guys start a podcast? <laughs> i think we talked about it for a year and a half before we actually yeah, I, started. I think we've been talking about it for a year and a half we should start a podcast um it seemed like everyone else was doing it why shouldn't we um and yeah um <laughs> all those other idiots are talking on on recordings <laughs> let's we should do it too why not us i have things to say <laughs> those guys can say dumb stuff i can't well why can't we say dumb stuff um <laughs> although uh, so so we'd been talking about it forever um, then what happened is we got um, right after the election, there was this epic Twitter thread um, where some of the people from Partially Derivative, which is a, a much this more is, popular podcast. It was before the, before the election, wasn't it? Was it before the election? We did the discussions happened before and everybody, everybody was in a, a, a jolly mood. Oh, right. Okay. So, so somehow we both got involved in this Twitter thread and then uh, Jonathan, who, who runs that podcast, just decided that he was going to do like an election podcast spectacular um, with all the people on the thread. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then once we did that, I was like, you know what, going on this podcast, uh, we need to have our own podcast to promote when we're there. So we like scrambled and like threw it together and recorded a first episode that wasn't very good and just like put it on the web so that when we recorded that, we say, Oh yeah, we're the guys from the (laughs) adversarial learning podcast, which you can find at adversariallearning.com. Um, (laughs) And then once we had that up there, then we kind of were forced to stick with it. I think part of it is, uh, you know, there's, it, it's in this, in this community, it's often that you don't see people that, you know, uh, online, um, except it's at, at conferences and stuff like that. So yeah. this is a great chance just to talk to the, the folks we communicate with in, in text and, you know, mm-hmm. all day long. So. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing is that whatever I do, conference presentations, blog posts, Twitter, uh, yeah. whatever, uh, is an opportunity to make jokes. And so this was like another opportunity to make jokes. So oh, hard, to, hard to say no to that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys think blogs are on the way out? I kind of, I kind of feel like. It's a good question. I feel like blogs are going down and podcasts and newsletters are kind of going up. It, it's funny you ask that because uh, Allen Institute does not have a blog. Um, and it's kind of one of my missions in life to get us to have one. And at the company meeting this week, I'm going to stand up in front of the whole company and like make a, make a spirited pitch that we should have a blog. So, um, clearly I, I don't think they're going down. I have a newsletter instead. <laughs> um, subscribe to my newsletter. I think, see, I, I, I think blogs serve a purpose and that is being able to read stuff rather than listen for an hour is, yeah. is an advantage. And I, I think that it's just different modes. Yeah. The, so, so here's the thing is that like, a blog post is evergreen in some sense, right? So I wrote that, uh, you know, FizzBuzz and TensorFlow thing, and people yep. are still discovering it. Whereas if it had been in a newsletter that I sent out, then, you know, uh, no one would. 
And yeah. I'm signed up to so many newsletters. You know, this guy, uh, Jack Clark, does this AI newsletter. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really good. And it arrives every week. And I never read it. So, um, yeah. th- th- there's pros and cons both ways. I've, I've, I think blogs are great. I haven't written in mine for a long time, but no, I mean, I've, I've been updated mine since, since the whole Fizbos thing, which was last May. Yeah. Um, you know, if anything, I take Twitter has replaced the blog for me because I tweet all the time and, uh, I don't have, yeah, medium was supposed to be the new, the new blog. I, I think I'm finally going to publish a medium post in the next couple of days. <laughs> I have an idea for, I have like all these drafts, like great I, <laughs> I have this one awesome draft. that's like all the terrible job interviews that I've been on and failed, but oh. it's like, it's, I showed it to some people and they're like, that's like a brilliant blog post and it's like too much name and shame and you should not publish it. So, oh uh, yeah. Um, so I, I go back, maybe someday I will, but yeah, just optimize it a little bit. mask the names. Yeah. I mean, I, I did, right? So it's like one time I interviewed at a bookstore and uh, you know, I won't tell you which books. I won't tell you which bookstore. Just change, use the, use the uh, MD5 hash. So it's right. true. Yeah. Another time I identified or I interviewed at an ephemeral photo sharing company. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know which one that one might be. Yeah, uh, uh, Flickr for that for when they shut it down. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, someone said something the other day about Flickr, and I was like, "Oh shit, I have a Flickr account." So I went and looked, and it had all these like hilarious photos from like 2004 <laughs> <laughs> that I hadn't looked at in like 10 years. <laughs> Pretty cool. <sighs> well, Jake, yeah, thank you, thank you for joining us. It's yeah, been thank, thanks so much for being here. This was a fun conversation. That was fun. Um, Thanks for having me. And remind us of the name of your book. Yeah, Python Data Science Handbook. And where, where can one buy it? You can you can buy it on uh, wherever your favorite books are sold, um, and you Fine. can also check it out on uh, on my GitHub repository. If you if you just search Python Data Science Handbook in Google, it's pretty good about directing you to the same place. And uh, you have a Twitter we can point people to. Yeah, my Twitter is Jake VDP. And uh, yeah, and which of those are capitalized? Uh, <laughs> Uh, the, the V and the P, please. I don't respond to tweets unless you get that right. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> well, th- thanks again. Thanks again for being here. Um, yeah, thanks. It's been fun. See you online. Yeah. Yeah. Joel here. Uh, just a reminder that if you like the episode, uh, you can go rate it on iTunes or Stitcher. I think you can rate things there. I don't actually know. Um, tweet it out to your friends. You can. Follow the Twitter, adversarial underscore L. You can send us email feedback, adversarial.learning.podcast at gmail.com. If you have ideas for guests you'd like to hear about, uh, hear from, or hear about, I guess, um, drop us a note. If you have questions you want us to address, uh, you can drop us a note there, too. We'll try and uh, answer those uh, if you send them. Uh, Or if you'd like to sponsor the episode. Uh, that could probably be arranged too. Uh, you know, adversarial.learning.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. And I will play you out with my little Las Vegas swanky lounge theme. <laughs>